Good morning, Anthem family. So happy you guys joined us this morning. Um, what an incredible week. It's been so amazing to be um, able to have Universal Hearts live for one week. I personally have had it on replay on my Spotify and it's just been so amazing. But um, it seems like we're all ready to go. So why don't you guys join us for worship? So about 10 years ago, our son Austin was making a key decision. It's one of those really important decisions that a young person makes. He's about 17 years old and he's trying to sort out where he's going to go to college. So he has it narrowed down to two possibilities. There was mine. I went to Southwestern in Keene, Texas, and he said, uh, no. <laughs> so that was the end of that. But he had it narrowed down to Southern Tennessee, to Walla Walla, Washington State. And as he was wrestling with that decision, he had visited Southern, was impressed by the campus. He had talked to the chair of the School of Theology there, Greg King, a classmate of mine from seminary. Come on up, Austin. I want to talk to you about this decision that you had to make, 17 years old. This decision had a few implications to it. Is that right? Yeah, a few implications to say the least. So give me an idea of what kind of implication. Who was involved? Who did it affect? Well, as you say, there were implications certainly involved with making a decision on where I would go to college. There was a lot of input, a lot of things I thought about. I had gone back and forth between these two schools, like you mentioned, Southern and Walla Walla. But there were a couple of things along the way. First, my very close friend, Jonathan Evans, was pivotal in this part of the decision. He and I had spoken a lot. We had both kind of gone up between the two of these places, and he had ultimately decided for Walla Walla. So Jonathan was affected by this. Jonathan was affected by now, this. Now well, he affected to, me by now this. Now I know who to blame. Okay. So <laughs> All right. Else? Well, next, <clears throat> because of the decision he made, because of the decision I made, it affected other people, of right. course. And so my sister, Miranda, also was affected by this decision. Oh, now, my goodness. She's an adult, and she made her own decisions, and you she had her own journey. Your daddy? But, <laughs> <laughs> but she also, you know, kind of made a decision based on those things. Right. And then... You went as happy, single people to Walla Walla. That's and right. We came back almost married. <laughs> but we each met very special people there. She ah. met Matthew, who she ended up marrying. I met Nicole, who I ended up marrying. Beautiful. And they were very, very special people to us that we met there at Walla Walla. All right. So the number of people being affected by this decision keeps growing. It's grown and grown. All right. Nicole, Matthew, we love you. You're part of the family. So. Part of the family. But, of course, they're not the only ones. You can see many more people are about to join us on the stage here. And these are just a few of the people who are in my life and our lives because of that decision. I see Heidi, Mar, Charles, Adri, Chase, Clark, and many, many more who can't be here today. But these wow. are all people that are in my life. So this decision, decision, you're making it 17 years old has affected in pretty significant ways these lives here. Yeah. But if we were to bring other people up, they would come, but they're not here, that would even grow. Oh, yeah. So give me an idea of who else. Well, you're going to see a picture here on the screen. If you guys can, like, stand part, a little bit to the side. Play like Moses we... and part, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So first we see our family right here. The two, you and mom, uh, Matt and Miranda, Nicole and I, and this is just our little so nuclear family. Who is that couple on the right? They're profoundly affected. <laughs> they're okay. profoundly affected, but you'll see in the next photo, okay. you'll see some good friends of mine. You'll see Jordan, a very close friend of mine, a cousin of Nicole's, Brooke, another very close friend of mine, Jeffrey, who didn't go to Walla Walla, but I've grown closer to him through college. Also very affected. Also very affected. And, and who then else? In the next photo, you're going to see more people that are affected. In fact, in this oh, picture, my goodness. a picture of our wedding party, 
there are probably only three people in there that would have been in my wedding party regardless. Everyone else you see in there is because I made that decision. I grew relationships with them at Walla Walla. At and 17, all right. You're going to see in the next photo, uh, my extended family from Nicole's side, all these people with whom I am now acquainted and know well, I probably wouldn't know them. And their family now. And their family now. And the circle even grows bigger it than grows that. It grows bigger. You'll see in the next picture even more Have people, mercy. everyone who attended our wedding. And wow. many, many of these people All are this in, because a 17-year-old made a decision. Because of that decision. Okay. But it's not just you and Nicole, no. but there's also something, a, a group that was profoundly affected by this in Miranda's life. No doubt. So what's the next picture? Look at that. Well, there's wow. our family. There they are. That's Who paid for that? Wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> so there's that group. And then, and then the next group, that was, that was our family there. Yeah, there's there's Matthew's, Matthew's family. family. Absolutely. And then all of your friends, Miranda. Yeah, you'll, you'll see, see the next picture of the wedding party. I yeah. think every single person in that picture, except maybe two, attended Walla Walla with Miranda or with me or with both of us. All affected by one decision. By now, one decision. you and I had a conversation at a, at a breakfast, breakfast place two, in Two, three years ago. Two or three years Carolyn's ago. Carolyn's Cafe. And I'm saying to you, Lost Austin, I just, there's something God <laughs> has put on my heart, a dream that Loma Linda University Church would have a modern worship service. Yeah. And we've been wrestling with this, praying about this. I don't know who could lead this. And you said... Oh, why don't you talk to a friend of mine? Someone I had met at Walla Walla. Someone with whom I'd become good friends with. And you said his name is Josh, Josh Jameson. Jameson. Have mercy. Now look at and that. so, long story very short, because of that 17-year-old's decision... And all of the little trails that followed, this young man has joined us. And he brought with him someone else. Well, look at that. Have mercy. And so by their ministry, they have affected all of these people. Everybody in and here. it goes back to one 17-year-old's decision. decision. <laughs> Who is your father? Have oh, mercy. Man. Thank you all Wisdom so abounds. much. If we brought all those people up on stage, we couldn't they all fit. fit. It's amazing. But don't, don't you leave yet. With all of this, I have to ask, how at 17 did you make that decision? That is a great question. Now, as a 17-year-old, like I had said, we'll rewind a little bit here. I had been kind of mulling that over, going back and forth in my mind between Walla Walla and Southern, and I wasn't sure. Like I mentioned, Jonathan and I had talked a fair bit. I remember one weekday evening after an orchestra rehearsal we went to, he pulled me aside and said, Austin, I have decided to attend Walla Walla. Jonathan. And immediately I was devastated because <laughs> I had really been leaning towards Southern. That's where I had really wanted to go. And so I was like, oh man, are you kidding me? So naturally, I put the decision off as long as I possibly could. And I just didn't want to make it. But it got to the point where I was like, man, I've got to make this decision or else I'm going to end up home here for this year and I won't be going to college. Yeah, I can't let that happen. Can't let that happen. <laughs> um, so I needed to make the decision. I remember one day in particular, it was getting kind of late. I needed to make this decision. I went up to my room and I thought, okay, now is the time. So I kind of sat there on the bed and I prayed about it. I prayed about it a lot. I said, Lord, I need your help to make this decision. I don't know what I am going to do but I want to do what you want me to do. And so I was like, okay, God, let's make a deal. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip a coin. And I need you to make this decision for me because I cannot make it for myself. Flip a coin. Flip a coin. So I sat there. I 
pulled out a quarter, and I was like, okay, God, if it lands on heads, I will go to Southern. But if it lands on tails, I will go to Walla Walla. Oh, mercy. So I sat there, flipped that coin. It floated in the air for what seemed like hours <laughs> on end. But it rotated who knows how many times, finally landed on the ground. I looked down there, and it said, tails. Mercy. And I said, God, we're going to go two out of three on this. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked that coin right back up, flipped it again, and sure enough, once again, it landed on tails. And I was like, wow. okay, God, I should have known bargaining with you, you always win anyway. So wow. that's what happened. Have mercy. <laughs> So here we're in a series about decisions. Yeah. We could just say that's the way and finish and all declare victory and go home. That's right. Just pray and flip those coins. <laughs> but what would you say now? Well, I am excited to be here because I know that over the course of this camp meeting season, you're going to be preaching and talking to us about the process of decision making from a scriptural place. And I speak for myself and hopefully many people here when I say, I am ready to listen and learn, and hopefully you give me some better methods of making decisions <laughs> than just flipping coins. Thank you, Austin, so much. I appreciate you being willing to share that very much. And so as Austin says, the question lingers in the air, is there a better way than flipping the coin? We are faced with decisions every single day, every single hour, truly every single moment. Decisions on every front. In fact, Cornell University did a study, the results of which suggested that we human beings make about 33,000 decisions a day. 200 alone having to do with food. We make decisions yeah, on all fronts. Just think about the decisions you've made already getting here this morning. First decision, whether or not to hit the snooze button. Next decision, am I getting out of bed now? Next decision, will it be scripture before phone? Next decision, what do I drink? Next decision, and we just make decisions. Comes to getting dressed, what am I going to wear? We look in the drawers, am I going to, what color of socks? Am I going to wear, do I want to look like Pastor Miguel? What do I want to do here? <laughs> decision after decision, what route will I take? What am I going to do about that person who cut me off? More decisions than we could ever process cognitively, thoughtfully. Because of that, the Israeli psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman, who's been studying decision-making for about four decades, says there are two primary systems of making decisions. System one, he calls, the knee, kind of the knee-jerk, intuitive, quick decision that we make on the fly and make on the run. System two, he says, is the much slower, more deliberate, thoughtful process of decision-making. The truth is, we cannot use system two very much, or we would utterly come to a standstill in our lives. But moving too many decisions thoughtlessly up to system one could get us into significant trouble. So how do we make decisions? I'm going to take a guess that somebody here is on the horns of a dilemma this morning. You're having to wrestle with a decision right now. I don't know what it is, what career path to take, what specialty to choose, whether or not to marry this person, whether or not to buy a house, what to do about some person in your life who's causing you difficulties. I don't know what decision you're facing. But here's what I want to ask of you. Throughout this camp meeting series, multiple choice, think through, pray through carefully each option. And maybe by the end of our time, these five weeks together, maybe you can make a thoughtful 
an informed decision. So today we begin with option A. Option A has one word, character. Character. Here's what I'm talking about. Malcolm Gladwell begins his book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, with the story of what happened down at the Getty Museum, not too far down the road from us in Los Angeles. Somebody had approached the Getty Museum with a curios. Now, you've seen these if you've been to museums or maybe online or on TV. They are statues. They are carving sculptures from the ancient world. This one was in amazingly good condition. It was of a young man, one foot kind of in front of the other, hands hanging by his sides, nude because that's the way they carved them. It was almost in perfect condition. The seller offered it to them at this price. It would be a prestigious addition to the Getty's collection. It would draw the attention of the museum world. It would get the respect of their colleagues, and it would be there for all the museum visitors to visit. And so they begin to check the paperwork, check out the authenticity, run some tests on it, trying to make sure this is authentic. Everything checked out. They felt very good about it, but there was just one thing. It, it was just so perfect. And it gave them some pause. Maybe we need to have some other experts come in. So they had a number of other experts come in and to look at it. And one at a time, they looked at the curios and they rendered their opinion. What was curious was that one after another of these experts said, there's a problem. But what caught my attention was that in every case with these experts, they had to use Gladwell's term, a blink response. Within two seconds, they said, there's a problem with this. This is not authentic. But then if asked, they would say, I I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why yet. I've got to process that. What I am sure of is that's a fake. In fact, one expert described it as an internal revulsion. Strong terms. Immediately felt. That caught my attention because what it says is that those experts made the decision before they faced the decision. It was because of all the years leading up to that moment in time, all the years of study, of archaeology, of understanding the different eras of time in the earth, of seeing the legitimate, authentic thing that allowed them, when they stepped into that space, to take one look and say, there's a problem with that. I don't know yet what it is, but that's not authentic. Blink. I want to suggest to you that character plays that role in our lives, particularly as Christ followers. Character. That we actually experience the importance of what happens before the decision every time we make a decision. It's all the years, months, weeks, days before what happened there that is summarized in one word, and that word is character. So, if that's the case, if we're making a decision before we face the decision, how do we build character? 
Well, there are many places in Scripture we could turn to deal with the answer to that question, but I'm going to go to what I think is the queen among the places, and that's the book of Proverbs. The book that is written about wisdom. And I'm going to suggest to you that when you read the book of Proverbs, every time you come across that word wisdom, if you substitute the word character, you're probably not going to be far off in terms of the meaning. So we go to Proverbs 3. We're going to start by reading four verses that are really the introduction to what the writer, the wise man, is going to say. And in this introduction, he is just saying, listen to me, child, listen to me. I want to say something to you. Pay attention. Keep your eyes on me because what I'm going to say to you is going to affect your life internally and externally. So pay attention. So let's read the introduction. Verse 1, chapter 3, my child, never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfied. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people and you will earn a good reputation. Listen to me. It'll affect you internally, externally. Another way to say it is it will grow your character. All right, wise man. You got our attention. Now how do we grow character? There follow four directives that he gives us. So directive number one is a very familiar passage. You've read it probably many times before, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Directive one has to do with our relationship with the one above us. Here's what he says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. There are two key words in that. They're the first word in each of the couplets. First one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Second one, seek his will in all you do. Trust and seek an attitude and an action, and they both have to do with our relationship with the one above us. So it begins with God. Building character has to do with understanding and then doing God's will. I've noticed over the years that a lot of times people wrestle with key decisions in their life. Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I enter this career? Should I go into that career? Should I marry this person? Should I marry that person? And sometimes they'll come to pastors and say, how do I know God's will? Well, interestingly, if you go to Scripture, you will find there are times, no doubt, where God says, I want this person to go over here, and I want that person to go over there, and this is what I want you to do. There are those times. There are many more times when it is as though God says, pick, choose. I've given you a mind to think with. Use it. And wherever you go, I will be with you. Choose. But the thing about which there is no doubt in Scripture is the kind of person he wants you to be when you get to that place, when you marry that person, when you enter that career. That there is no question about. This is who I want you to be, and you've got to make some decisions, child, on the journey. 
And just know I'll be there with you. Continue to trust me. Continue to seek my will. When I read those two words this week, it took me back to my adolescence and early teenage years when my father was taking flying lessons. Dad became a mission pilot. Those years he was taking flying, I remember him bringing, the best I can describe it is a hood home. It was like a baseball cap, except it had a, a really large bill on it that kind of came down on the sides. Once you put it on, it was very narrowly focused on what you could see right in front of you. The purpose was for a student pilot not to be able to see anything outside of the plane and only to be able to focus on the instruments. Now, the instructor sitting right beside them could see everything. Dad said, it is the hardest thing in the world. There are times when you see those instruments and you think, that cannot be right. There is no way, and you want to pull hard. You've got to trust the instrument, says the instructor. In fact, I read this week a, a, a pilot who was an instructor said, I have had students try to fly the plane upside down because they can't believe the instrument is correct. Turn it completely upside down. Trust your instruments. That's what the wise man is saying. You have to be acquainted with the way God works if you're going to trust and have fruitful seeking. So speaking of dad, let me give you an example. Dad went to his rest in Jesus a number of years ago now. When I go back and visit siblings and my mom, I will sometimes peruse his bookcases. Dad was a voracious reader. And, and I will peruse his bookcases and at times choose books and bring them home. One of the things that has impressed me as I have perused his bookcases is how many books he had and read on Native American history. There was something in Dad's heart that broke for the plight of people who were treated unjustly. He read, he learned, and his heart palpitated with a passion to reach out to indigenous peoples. That's why he took flying. That's why he became a mission pilot in Mexico. That's why he went to the Huichol Indian Reservation in the Sierra Madres of Mexico, taking to them medical aid and food to a people that time had forgotten. Nobody paid attention to. It was his passion. And I perused those bookcases. Remember, this is a young man who grew up in Texas in the 30s and 40s. One thing I can guarantee you, the plight of the Native Americans, the plight of African Americans did not enter into the culture. This was not everybody tweeting about justice. This was not everywhere you turn being reminded, pay attention to this because it's important. In fact, it was very much the opposite. And I look there and I say, Dad, what was it? What reached you in that way? And I know the answer. This reached him. This became his guide. Here he learned that God is on the side of the disenfranchised. Those who have been forgotten. Those who have been devalued. And his heart began to beat with that passion, not because it was politically correct, but because it reflected the character of God. That's what happens when you align yourself 
with trusting and seeking? There's a word for that. The word is character. Your relationship to the one above you. That's the first directive. But we go back to Proverbs 3 for the second directive. Second directive is not only our relationship with the one above us, but our relationship with the self within us. Our relationship with the self within us. Verse 7, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Do you see that first line? Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. In other words, don't be so impressed with yourself. Stop being so fascinated by that figure in the mirror. Stop trying to tweet out every perfect thing about you and hide every flaw. Don't be impressed with yourself, says the wise man. If you want to build character, you have to have an honest, authentic relationship with the self within you. You have to ask yourself some questions. Am I here to serve or to be served? Am I here to consume or to contribute? Is it all about me or am I part of the great web of humanity? What do I think about myself? Do I realize that I am in the eyes of God of inestimable, inestimable value, but I'm no more important than anyone else? They're all of inestimable value in the eyes of God. So the word is humility. Humility. The late John Stott preeminent scholar, evangelical theologian, rector of All Souls Church in London for 25 years, and then after he left that position, stayed in the same church and began to direct worldwide efforts in terms of not only the gospel, but outreach to the poor down in Africa. In fact, in 2005, Time Magazine voted John Stott one of the 100 most influential people on the planet, not in the church, not in evangelicalism, one of the 100 most important people, influential people on the planet. In that time, right about that time, we visited All Souls on a number of occasions, had the wonderful privilege of meeting him, spending some time with him. I can remember sitting right about here. Now at All Souls, they have a pulpit that's right here, and then on the stage, right over in this section, they have two or three pews where the pastoral staff sits while the preacher preaches. So we're sitting right over there, and here's the preacher preaching. And when we were there, at times it was an associate minister, at times it was the senior rector, at times it was a lay person. And I sat there, and I watched John Stott, eminent scholar, influence around the world, listening to the sermon and taking notes. And I thought, are you stinking kidding me? Taking notes? You've written dozens of books. You've written commentaries on this passage. Taking notes? There's a word for that. Character. Humility. I am of inestimable value in the eyes of God, but I'm no more important than that person preaching. It's not only our relationship to the one above us. It's our relationship to the self within us. 
But the wise man isn't done because he has a third directive. This one is in verse 9. 9 and 10. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the best part of everything you produce. Then you will fill your barns with grain, and your vats will overflow with good wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Generosity. Not just the attitude and the action of trusting and seeking, not just a fair estimate made exhibited in humility, but now generosity by honoring the Lord with our wealth. Now, the first thing that crosses my mind as a pastor, as a leader in a congregation is, yeah, folks, pay attention to that, because we depend on your giving to do any kind of ministry. But as important as that might be and as much as we might appreciate it, this is much more than that. Go over to Proverbs 14 where it says, if you want to honor the Lord, give to the poor. Go to Proverbs 19 where it says, when you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord. And are you going to stand before the Lord and say, can you pay me back? <laughs> Read Isaiah 58 when you go home today. It's utterly clear that one of the most important ways we honor the Lord with what we have is our relationship to those around us. Caring for the poor. My dear friend, the late Larry Thomas. Some of you knew Larry. Larry, a part of this community. Larry had a heart that beat with a passion for the poor. He wanted to make a difference in their lives, especially in the country of Ethiopia. He had many projects that he started trying to help people with poto, fistula surgeries, changing people's lives. But one of the ones that mattered the most to Larry was a project he started to restore sight to people who had lost their sight because of cataracts. They couldn't get cataract surgery and they lost their sight. And Larry says, it not only imprisons them in their darkness, but it imprisons a child from the family. Because when they go blind, then the family assigns a child as their seeing eye child. And now for the rest of that blind person's life, this child is tethered to them, can't go to school, can't run and play, but leads and guides them through life. He said it imprisons two people. But with a surgery, we can take away the cataract and they can see again. He said to me, Randy, I want to do all I can to bring sight to as many people as possible in Ethiopia. That became his passion. Not too long before Larry died, one day he said to me, Randy, you know what? We have restored sight in Ethiopia to enough people to fill your sanctuary ten times over. 20,000 people. 20,000 people. There's a movie about it, and you see people sitting in lines just like this with bandages over their eyes. The day has come to remove them, and they're working down the road, taking off the bandages, and people can see. Larry said to me at one point, you know, Randy, he says, a lot of people are asking us now as we move along in life, why didn't you care about these things when you were young that we now see? He said, but I'll tell you, I think generations to come are going to have a key question for us that's not being asked enough. And I said, what's that, Larry? He said, here it is. They're going to ask us, why didn't you do more for the poor? This week, 
tucked away in a file on my computer. I found an email that Larry had sent me in February of 2012. Nine years ago, more or less. He said, Randy, from Time Magazine, February 6, 2012, page 7. According to a recent survey, the amount the average U.S. worker spends on coffee each year is $1,092. This is what Larry wrote. I just read the above factoid while in the barbershop waiting to get my hair cut. This is shocking. With this amount of money, we could restore vision to 52 totally blind people in Ethiopia. And then he signed it off, trying to recover. Larry. Now friends, this is not about coffee. This is about all kinds of things in our lives. All kinds of ways that we hoard. And yet the wise man says, if you want to be a person of character, generosity, remember the poor, your relationship to those around you. So we want to grow character, we say, wise man, tell us how. He says, it's your relationship to the one above you. Trust and seek, an attitude and an action. It's your relationship to the self within you, humility, fair judgment. It's your relationship to those around you. Be generous, generosity. And then the fourth directive, verse 11. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Correction, discipline. The word is surrender. It's our relationship to the one who corrects us. Often originating with God, sometimes brought to us by people. It's a hard question. What do I do when somebody needs to correct me? Somebody needs to discipline me? Somebody needs to call me to accountability? How do I respond to that? Do I push them away? Reject it? Do I remain open? Do I surrender to God? Surrender to God a willingness for God to work in my life as painful as it may be. Would you permit me another Larry Thomas story? Larry told me one day, Larry was always meeting people. It was unbelievable. Larry knew everybody. I'd say to him, Larry, how in the world do you meet these people? He's on a plane one time, goes back to the restroom, has to wait and wait, and he's like, this person dying here? Finally, the plane door opens, and it's Francis Chan. He ends up sitting the rest of the flight talking to Francis Chan. Like, Larry, what in the world? How do you meet these people? In fact... Not long before he died, I contacted him. I was wanting to do something with LLUH. And I said, Larry, is there any way you can get me in touch with Philip Yancey, the writer? The next day in the afternoon, I had an email from Philip Yancey. How can we... I mean, Larry knew everybody. So Larry tells me this story about a man named John Profumo. John Profumo, many years ago, decades ago, was a member of parliament, politician, leader in the U.K., got caught up in a torrid affair with a young, much younger actress and model. When it was found out, it hit the headlines everywhere. Perfumo came out and said, absolute lies, not true. But within two or three days, Larry said, he recanted. He came out and he said, I'm sorry. It is true. 
I was wrong. He resigned his position, went to work for a charity, cleaning toilets. Disappeared from the public eye. For years, working to help others. And then two or three decades later, Larry is in London, walking down the street one day. Doesn't know anybody in London, getting to know the place. And he looks in this bookstore and he thinks, that guy looks like John Perfumo. And so he gets up his courage. He goes in, kind of stands by him, and, and finally gets up the courage and says something to him, you know, you, you really look like John Perfumo. And the gentleman said, uh, well, I am. He said, oh, my goodness. Well, it, it's a privilege to me. I don't know anyone in London, but it's a privilege to meet you. And he said they talked for a moment. And then he said, Perfumo said to him, he said, when you go back to America, you can tell them that you have a friend in London. You know what the word for that is? Character. Willing to face discipline, instruction, our relationship with the one who would correct us, surrendering to his will in our lives. And so I think about those experts standing there at the Getty, looking at that kuros, and being asked, is it legitimate? And that intuitive response where they said, that's a fake. Can't tell you why yet, but that's a fake. They had made that decision before they ever faced that decision by all that had gone into their lives. I want to suggest to you that option A, is the word character. And the building of character in your life is the way that you will make the decision before you face the decision. It is what will lead you to, in a sense, intuitively say, that's not good, or that is good. It may take you a while yet to unpack all the implications, to sort out all of the details, but there is something foundational that is guiding you. So there you have it. You want to grow character? Well, first of all, you start with that attitude and that action. Trust and seek. You add to it humility. You add to it generosity. You add to it surrender. And by the end of that, what you have is character. That's option A. So I don't want you to make your decision yet. This is multiple choice. You still got option B, C, D, and all of the above left. But I do want to ask you, as you leave this place today, to open your heart to the Spirit of God's work, to give you the courage to grow character. Wow, what an incredible service we just had. Um, so amazing with the worship and the word that the pastor brought to us. Another way that you guys are able to stay connected with us is by giving. So um, since you guys are online, you guys are also able to give at LUC. Um, text uh, the number 77977. You can also give online at luc.org slash give. So have a great week, guys. Remember, all you can do is do your best, and God's going to do the rest. See y'all later.